Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. I'm joined by Tetyana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Hello, Tanya. Hello. This is our weekly podcast, weekly digest, in which we are trying to sum up, uh, to make a resume of the key events and trends in and around Ukraine during the past week from the 3rd of July until the 10th of July. So let us let us talk about this. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon patreon.com slash Ukraine World. We try to send a big amount of your support to help people affected by this war and to help Ukrainian resistance. So let's talk about this week, the first week of July, in your opinion, and what were the major maybe trends of this week? Yes, let's start with the new tactics of Ukrainian army, uh, which is observed now by many military experts and also people on the ground. This new tactics is about to, to shell, to, to bomb um, main weapon stock of Russian Federation, Russian army, based um, mainly in the occupied territory. Some of them were, uh, are quite old, for example, in Donetsk, in Shakhtarsk, and in territories which were occupied in 2014-2015, but some of them are new. And what we observed during this week, that the uh, Ukrainian army multiplied the number of strikes against these stocks. Now we are talking about more than 20 already strikes against these stocks, and this is about uh, artillery, about artillery and about um, the main advantage of the Russian army. Because the main question is why Russian army was able to progress even slowly in Donbass. The response is is quite clear. It is was because it has a large superiority in, in terms of artillery. Now, when Ukraine got these new systems, like, for example, HIMARS system, American system, the most famous one, but many other systems as well, Ukrainian army at that point is able to access, to get access to these stocks situated in, I don't know, in 40 kilometers, maybe in 50 kilometers from the, the place they strike, and to destroy these huge, really huge uh, stocks. Let us let us say to, to our listeners that finally we can say that slowly, but we hope steadily, despite the offensive of the Russian army, Ukrainians are really uh, taking advantage from these new heavy weapons. Yeah, really. Because at the early stages of the war, Ukrainians get a lot of, let's say, light weapons, which means, for example, the, uh, the Stingers, uh, anti-air, anti-air rockets, and the javelins, anti-tank rockets. But these are weapons which are operated by individuals. So it was, it is rather defensive weapons. So if you, if you have helicopters uh, running over your heads and uh, you have an army in which there are many stingers, well, Russians will think twice whether they will send helicopters, right? The same with tanks. So Russians understood that if we are, they are approaching on big roads with huge columns of tanks, Ukrainian soldiers equipped with javelins can easily, one, one soldier can easily strike one of the tanks or several tanks. And now what we see, this is a, a kind of important change in these deliveries because now when Western partners of Ukraine deliver this uh, these complicated system, HIMARS system and all the other systems which are able to, to strike the enemy 
in a long distance, because now we are talking about the war in a long distance. So Russians, they are shelling Ukrainians, both Ukrainian troops and Ukrainian civilians from an extremely long distance. For missiles, it could be seven, several hundreds of kilometers. But even for troops, they are not approaching Ukrainian troops at all. They were trying to, to hit First of all, with heavy artillery, many, many systems used, and then, only then, they were using tanks to approach and to control just another bit of Ukrainian territory. But what is changing now? We have now a kind of a first fruit of these uh, Western deliveries here, because the process was quite took quite long in, in, in a way. But this after Lysychansk period we are entering, um, on the one hand, we see that Russian army is really exhausted after Lysychansk and Severodonetsk because it was a long operation which lasted for many months, for three months, almost three months. And two mu of, of them, two months of very intense uh, battle. And they are exhausted in terms of tanks, in terms of people, in terms of troops. And at the same time, Ukrainians started to get and to use these new systems by destroying their stocks. And people who are on the ground, they say that uh, there is a direct consequence, direct effect of these strikes against stocks, because the next day the stock is destroyed. Uh, Russian troops, they don't have enough of... Uh, uh, enough of, enough of shell? shell yes. yeah, shells to, to send here. And on the ground, it means that their only tactics, which was to destroy everything on their way, so their strength was to, to, to destroy everything and to advance. Now they are deprived of their strength. Because, but at the same time, this is a quite... I, I, what is important for, for me, I think, this is very intelligent in a way. Because Ukrainian troops, they don't have... Uh, the same number of these systems. Now we were talking about, I don't know, nine high Mars or something like that, comparative number. Now United States are talking about maybe delivering four more systems. We don't know exactly. We are civilians, but military uh, experts are talking about that number. But it, precisely because we don't have enough of artillery and enough of HIMARS, they are, Ukrainian troops are trying to, to use them in a very intelligent way striking not troops but stocks and in a way in, in making impossible for russians to continue to use their tactics so uh, compared to march this is a much more distance war because during march uh, we had a situation when ukrainians saw the russian soldiers either under occupation or in indirect fights, uh, etc. Now we moved back to the distance war, to the artillery war. And indeed, you're absolutely right. Russians are, are waging war in a, in a very destructive way. So they destroy cities instead of taking them. They destroyed Mariupol, now they destroyed Severodonetsk, uh, they destroyed Rubizhna, they destroyed Lysychansk, right? Lysychansk, it was a little bit different because they started to destroy it, but then they encircled the city, so that was the reason of their success. So, uh, and, um, and uh, what's happening is that y Ukrainians are trying to do something with this, do something with this distance. Therefore, as I said before, at first there was there was supplies of this light weaponry which was needed for kind of a defensive war maybe even partisan war when you when you see lots of columns of tanks and your task is to destroy as as much as possible 
Uh, now, when these Russians failed in this, right, and Ukrainians were asking for heavy weapons, primarily the artillery, uh, the armored vehicles, and now it's it seems that it's uh, really delivering something, delivering uh, important results, because there are HIMARS, as far as I understand, we're not military experts, but HIMARS is a uh, multi-rocket multi launch systems, and th they have GPS. That means they have the capacity of autocorrection. They are very precise and very long, long distance. And that means that this, is, this becomes very high technological war. Uh, Russians are increasingly running out of the high-precision weapons. We also talked about this in our previous, pre previous podcasts. And therefore, they're using old rockets, and therefore, the number of casualties among civilians can even rise. Ukrainians, uh, thanks to Western support, have much more high-precision weapons. And we're talking about HIMARS, but we're talking about Hovitzers. Why Ukrainians were asking for Hovitzers, which is also very long-distance uh, long artillery. And now it seems that people on the front line, they're telling us that there are French Hovitzers Caesar, there are German Hovitzers, uh, which is, I think it's called Panzer Haubitze 2000, something like this. There are Polish-British Hovitzers Krab, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, their number is already quite big, there's several hundreds maybe. And this can make a difference. Yeah. But uh, important thing is to underline here is that our success story in March uh, around Kiev, in Chernigiv and in Sumy, why Ukrainians managed to to push Russians Chernigiv and Sumy, this and is Sumy. northern and northern eastern no, Ukraine. Yes. The, the reason was it was about the destruction of logistics of Russian troops. It was not about that Ukrainian troops destroyed every Russian which, which was on the ground. We, are, we were quite far from that. But in a way, it was even unexpected that they left Ukraine, left these regions. But in a way, it was uh, you can explain it by the fact that Ukrainian army was able and managed to destroy this logistics. I mean, everything you need for the army. It's the same, the same as now, for example, is by destroying stocks, you are destructing their logistics. And it you are making things extremely complicated for advance and also for defense. Because if... Uh, by logistics, you mean in, in March, it's fuel supply, it's food, the, uh, the food supplies, shells supplies, well. ammunition supplies, etc. Yes. Because they approached Kyiv, it was quite quite far from stocks in Belarus. So, and now what the what Ukrainian troops are doing, it's it's happening in the east, but it is also important. It's happening in the south. There were several strikes in the seat inside Kherson, in Chernobyevka, in Melitopol. Many important, really huge stocks were destroyed, and it means that troops located, uh, Russian troops located in the south, they could be in short of all these uh, weapons, uh, in order to 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 defend to defend themselves, because Ukrainian army will start it, uh, its its counteroffensive uh, soon sooner or later. Anyway, in maybe in coming weeks or in coming months. So it will be quite so, co yes. quite but, complicated for them. But you mentioned these. Uh, strikes in uh, ammunition uh, ammunition stocks in Donetsk. We can mention also Popasna, which is a town in Luhansk Oblast, uh, not far away from from this triangle, Lysychansk, Rubizhne, 
Severodonetsk rights. So indeed, this strikes very intelligent, very clever strikes on ammunition stocks, and uh, which indeed like, disrupts Russian Russian logistics. And this is this is very important. So our conclusion is that we see well while Ukrainians have always been complaining that weapon supplies are not enough, that we need more. Uh, we can understand, of course, we were also st stressing this, but now I think there is a moment when we can say that they are arriving and they are making difference. And that's very important. It's not doesn't mean that they are enough, because Ukrainians are still very far away from the Russians in terms of artillery, in terms of, you know, uh, tanks, of course, the machinery, but they are already making a difference. And that means that by ha having lesser resources, Ukrainians can uh, can achieve achieve uh, achieve success. Another thing that we see, and this is a point by Yuri Butusov, for example, a Ukrainian journalist who is very often on the front line, military journalist, and he's saying, I, I like his point very much, that this is also is going to be a technology war. And... Um, he made a comparison that a, a, a young person with a, uh, with a mobile phone which directs a, a, a drone and this drone identifies clearly the positions and Ukrainian army which has very good high-speed internet thanks to Starlink by Elon Musk. Uh, which were supplied to Ukrainian army. This makes a huge difference because this gives you an information where to strike. Right, and uh, as soon as you you have the exact precise information where to strike, and you have like high high Mars, which are which have this high precision GPS systems, you can really target uh, good uh, good targets. So this means that if Ukraine gets more and more high sophisticated technology, and this technology comes from the West, and Russians are cut off from this technology. That can make a difference. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, let us stress one important thing about political objectives of, uh, of Russia. This week we observed many statements coming from Russia and specifically from Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin <laughs> stating that uh, we haven't started yet the serious things and uh, a lot of... Um, uh, he was talking about threat of. Uh, he was uh, t trying to make uh, uh, to make us be, be, to, be, to be afraid of 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 the what is to come, but. Um, at the same time, we see that they have no success. After Lysychonsk, they have really no place to, no real, no real possibility to advance. They need time. Uh, they can prepare things, not um, specifically people. They are preparing new battalions on the Russian territory, maybe in order to use them, not maybe, but surely to use them somewhere in the east and Donbass, maybe in Kharkiv region. But at the same time, they are incapable to, to deliver important results. At the same time, they proclaim, proclaim that they already control all the Lugansk Oblast region, which is not true because uh, they still have to conquer at least two or three villages in order to stay to say that they uh, have control the whole region well, but so this the, is not that important yeah, yeah this is we, important we, because they cannot proclaim any kind of i don't know sovereignty or independence of a, or of a region which still lacks uh, 
even if uh, we are talking about two or three villages. And uh, they are quite far away from their objective to control the Donetsk uh, region. So it, we can say that from now, they will need at least, at least the same effort. It means at least three months more to get uh, all the uh, Donetsk region because it took them three months to get uh, Lugansk region. And this is the smallest ambition of Putin to control Lugansk and Donetsk regions. Otherwise, he will he, he he's running serious risks because uh, the clear the clear objective of the second um, second part of the military operation was to liberate, as they say, uh, to occupy, in fact, Donetsk and Lugansk region. So they are quite away. They exhausted. Uh, they are running off uh, high technology uh, weapons, not only missiles, but because of sanctions, they don't have access to many potencies contrary to Ukraine. So now it is quite clear that things are getting complicated for Russian army and for Putin politically. So this is a moment, maybe decisive moment, and maybe we are entering a decisive phase of this war. I don't think that this is a decisive phase. I think uh, it can last four months and maybe years, and uh, still Ukrainians uh, have the capacity to counterattack. We have seen it recently on on Zmini Island, right? We talked a, a little bit about this, why it was important. Uh, because it was also a very complicated operation, which involves artillery, which involves uh, correction, which involves uh, air uh, airspace, which involves drones, uh, intelligence. And um, I think that this is intelligence is very important. And here the co I think the cooperation with Western partners on intelligence is something which is which is very important mm, as well. Another important detail, uh, talking about the South, there were official announcements already, a call f coming from the Ukrainian side for locals, for people living in Kherson and the Prusia region, to try to escape, to leave their homes uh, in a short time, uh, just in view of Ukrainian counteroffensive. So now we can say this is official. Maybe it's kind of also a way to show to Russians that the Ukrainians are already ready to counterattack. But at the same time, when, for example, Rina Vereshuk, which is a minister for occupied territories, is making statements like that, it means that things are serious. So they were inviting people to leave these territories or even well, if they can cannot do that so just to find a place to stay safe somewhere in the underground just in view of the battle to come so it means that there is a battle to come it means that ukrainian troops will be counter-attacking shortly yeah of course the south is very important because uh, kherson is the biggest city which is occupied by the russians since 24th of february and it was occupied without real fight. Uh, so also many questions as to the first days. Uh, but Ukrainians are eager to deoccupy Kherson, but also the agricultural territories. There was an information this week that, uh, according to NASA, NASA, uh, the famous organization, space American space organization, which, uh, according to its information done by the satellites, Russians have occupied, I think, 22% of Ukrainian farmable land. And agriculture is, of course, very important for Ukrainians. 
and uh, not only this is the question which i hope that every all all over the world we already know about this the blockade of ukrainian agricultural exports through the black sea from the odessa ports but uh, there is also this question of occupation of the farmable lands and very very fertile uh, farmable lands in the south that we we have in Kherson oblast in the Parisia oblast in Mykolaiv oblast etc but um, as to the ukrainian counteroffensive russians are really focusing on donbas and you're absolutely right that the next battles will be for the cities in donetsk oblast let's name them it's primarily kramatorsk slavyansk, slavyansk uh, bakhmut these are all the frontline cities, towns to which we are, have all accustomed to traveled so so many times since 2014. The they became kind of a, also the uh, the the places of culture, the places of activities, especially Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. They re- really revived. They they really uh, paradoxically they really got a boost in development after the occupation of Donetsk. And let's not forget that uh, Slovyansk and Kramatorsk were occupied in 2014. Yeah. So they then they were liberated by Ukrainian army. So this they, is this is the cities from which everything began. Started yeah. Uh, Strelkov slash Girkin occupied these Slavyansk uh, and then there were battles for, for Slavyansk. It yes. just to give you an idea that uh, in fact Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, Drushkivka, Konstantinivka, they are uh, towns and, and villages, small small towns, really close to the front line. And still after four months of war, this uh, full-scale invasion, they are still controlled by the Ukrainian army. This is about the real progress of Russians, though. They they really had some success in the Lugansk region, namely because uh, Lugansk region is close, in a way, closer to, to Russia. Yes, so the it was Lugansk is, has a, these, uh, the, the territories they initially occupied yeah. is just bordering Russia. Uh, the regions of Donetsk, they are bordering the so-called DNR primarily, right? And therefore... Russians were not but that even successful. If, but, but even with this border, with DNR, during four months, they were unable to, in some directions, they were unable to to move one meter for, from the very beginning. So if you can compare that with Kiev, for example, when tanks were arriving, they were close to Kiev, I don't know, the second or the third day already here, close to the capital. So in that region, there were real Ukrainian troops prepared for fighting, prepared for war for eight years already. So they were unable to move. And we do hope that we'll be unable to do so. But let's let's observe how it will be going now with this uh, high Mars and with these new tactics, which is which could find this uh, uh, this weakness, the, the same weakness of Russian army as in March. I, I mean, logistics and all this. Um, this is uh, maybe one of the weakest place of Russian army. What else? Uh, what else is happening? Russians continue to strike against civilian uh, objects, unfortunately. And, um, and, for example, Kharkiv remains a very... A uh, very, uh, very worrying place. Uh, we have been to Kharkiv. We made a, a podcast about Kharkiv. But since we visited the city, I think the situation has become worse. Russians are, are trying to make shelling against Kharkiv, against the civilians. And we have our friends there. And it seems that real, if, if you're, if, even if you're li- living in the Kharkiv downtown, 
you risk uh, being a target of Russian missile. And uh, there are persons who are injured, there are persons who are dead, unfortunately. And uh, from what we know, the situation is not very good because, well, active people, small businesses, are, uh, mid-sized businesses do not really see the perspectives to, to, to continue living in the city. So, but the city is struggling and, and, uh, and we, are, we are thinking of coming back to Kharkiv and, uh, soon, so we will keep you informed. Yeah, the problem with Kharkiv is that uh, uh, they are, uh, what is extremely traumatizing about the Kharkiv experience is that they had this uh, extreme intense uh, period of battle in March But later in April, it was a kind of uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive, and Ukrainian troops were able to push Russians very close to the border. And let us remind to our listeners that Kharkiv is situated 40 kilometers only from the Russian border, so it's quite close, and it's the distance it allows even artillery strikes from the border. But it was a kind of uh, quite calm period. But then... Russian troops uh, were able to reapproach Kharkiv, so they were regaining um, some territories, and they are closing out to Kharkiv. If you compare to where they've been, maybe two or three, four weeks ago, and this retreat, and people were starting to come back. So it was a time then people decided, families decided to come back to their apartments, to their houses, and when you come back. You hope that uh, you you will start a new life. You will restart your life, and when uh, you see that it comes back, so it's extremely traumatizing uh, for businesses, but also for people. People who decided to to live in Kharkiv, and now they see that it's becoming complicated. It's becoming too complicated to be outside because if if there is artillery fire, you you are not you don't get uh, this airlet, and you really don't know. And which it, it, it may it may be struck at every minute, and you can be killed just in a number of seconds, and you will never guess where it is. So it's much worse than, than if you compare to Kiev. At least we have alerts, we have just an idea, we have ten minutes to to hide. But this is artillery war. It is something very different. And for Kharkiv, I mean, if we talk about schools, for example, consider a family. And they are thinking about autumn, about September, about sending people, to, kids to school. I don't think a lot of people will be courageous enough to, to stay in the city and to, I don't know, to worry every day about their kids that they send them to schools. So we know that there were a lot of sharings of schools in Kharkiv, etc., etc. So it, if when you are back already from the underground and you restart to leave and then you you are to be back, to the same situation as in March, it is extremely traumatizing. Exactly. And uh, one also another thing is that Russians continue to strike not only against civilian objects, but also against the buildings of culture, the buildings of education. And uh, this week they stroke the pedagog- pedagogical university in Kharkiv, which is a university... Uh, named after Skovoroda, I think, right? It's and in Saltivka, yes. Yes, also in Saltivka. And Skovoroda uh, is a great Ukrainian philosopher of 18th century. We've already informed you, I think, once that Russians destroyed his museum is in a village Skovorodinivka, and there were lots of 
pictures of this Skovorodai, these beautiful monuments, because he's a wandering philosopher, one of the symbols of Ukrainian culture. And now they hit uh, this university, Skovorodai University, and also we have seen the pictures of the monuments to Skovorodai, which were damaged. Uh, traveling across Ukraine, we have seen uh, many other examples how they hit the Russians hit libraries, the Russians hit museums, Russians hit uh, music halls, theaters. Uh, well, the hypothesis is the bad hypothesis is that uh, they are trying to destroy Ukrainian culture. The neutral hypothesis is that they are targeting any big buildings in which they are thinking that there is a territorial defense or whatever. But um, what we see is that very often these are places where civilians are at this moment, either hiding or just, you know, uh, having their place there. Mm -hmm. And maybe um, last thing, last thing to discuss that we discuss every day, actually, every, every, every hour weekly is the Belarus, whether Belarus will enter this war. And uh, still the answer is we don't know. Although Lukashenko is, is, is collecting troops and preparing them, it seems, but it also seems that he wants to kind of avoid the engagement. Uh, Belarus has the army of conscripts, doesn't have a real professional army. They don't have real the, the uh, battle experience. So quite probably this will be very young people, very young boys. 18, 20, 22 years old, will be sent to, to the hell in Ukraine. Many will be killed. So I think Lukashenko is just afraid of that because he understands that, well, contrary to Russia, where uh, I think three-fourths three maybe of population supports Putin, Lukashenko, we know that he doesn't have a support in, in his country anymore. Yeah, but at the same time, the signals about trainings, which are still in place in Belarus, they were to stop first in the, on the 1st of July. They were prolonged until the 9th. Now they prolonged once again. So the kind of attention they're creating is this kind of, uh, kind of threat uh, for Ukraine in order for Ukraine to keep Ukrainian troops somewhere close to Belarus, border with Belarus, just to keep them occupied and not to be concentrated in the east or in the south. So maybe the game is just to keep Ukrainians occupied with this constant threat, even with, without this, without entering Ukrainian territory, they are still able to concentrate enough of Ukrainian troops in the north. And it means that these troops are not uh, ready to be deployed in the east or in the south. Maybe this is a part of this game. And still, we uh, we also receive information about um, uh, more Russian soldiers and more Russian weapons entering Belarus during this week. We're not talking about huge numbers, but still uh, things are going on, so it keeps it keeps Ukrainians uh, very attentive to what is going on in Belarus. Yes, because of course Belarus army is probably not the, the biggest army in the world, uh, even compared to, to the Russian and Ukrainian armies, but still to have another invasion from the north. Just another front. Another front line, of course, it will be difficult for Ukraine, obviously. But uh, we are sure here in Ukraine that Ukraine will win. And of course, Ukraine needs, needs support. Uh, we are more and more understanding that this war can be long. And uh, Ukrainians are strong enough to, to stand very long. 
but Ukrainians also need long-term support. So please do not have any fatigue about that. Believe me that uh, any fatigue that you might have, our listeners abroad, um, Ukrainians have also much bigger fatigue and much much uh, harsher psychological, physical circumstances. But as you can see, uh, we are not going to surrender and our people are brave. And uh, what surprises us in our, in our conversations with people who suffered a lot and we travel a lot uh, through Ukraine is that many people are smiling while responding to our questions. But this will be a topic of, of a next episode. We will tell you about our recent trip to Makariv, which was heavily suffered from the war uh, in one of our next podcasts. Also, a, a little announcement. Uh, we have very interesting episodes coming up. Uh, a conversation with Peter Pomerantsev, a famous author and uh, author of books This is Not Propaganda and um, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. We uh, talked with Peter when he came to Kiev recently. He travels a lot uh, from America to Kiev. And I also talked to Natalia Huminuk, one of our best reporters. So uh, you, will, you will have these episodes next week. I really advise you to listen to them. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, website in English about Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the biggest and oldest Ukrainian media NGOs. I talked to Tetyana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. My name is Volodymyr Yermolnko, I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. You can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We send a big amount of your support to help people affected by this war in our volunteer humanitarian trips across Ukraine. And uh, stay with us and stand with Ukraine.